Hello and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, we are coming to the end of the first unit of the HP Lovecraft Book Club, in which I look at the stories Lovecraft wrote from his juvenilia up until up and through 1919. Uh, up until really through his World War One writings and his first great explosion of output in 1919. Some of his most beloved stories were published in this period, such as Dagon, such as uh, such as the transition of Juan Romero, the doom that came to Sarnath, and of course the statement of Randolph Carter. Um, so we're ending on a bit of a problematic story here called The Street. Now this was not included in either of the Leslie Klinger anthologies. Uh, I can sort of understand why, because this story is so disliked um, by people who are uncomfortable with Lovecraft's uh, racial politics, his views on immigrants, his views on history. But that's what we're going for. We're trying to dig into this aspect of Lovecraft's thought, love his writing, and therefore the street is a very, very important story for us to unravel, to think about, to take seriously and to, yes, crit criticize, but to understand uh, Lovecraft, I think the street is, is important. It's not a horror story. It doesn't have supernatural elements outside of this general idea that streets, locations have souls. Um, very kind of important idea in a lot of horror fiction. If you see like uh, um, uh, some of Stephen King's work with the Marston House and Salem's Lot, or the Overlook Hotel, or, or of course, the work that influenced him, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. These all play with the idea of places having souls and memory. And, and of course, that's key to the idea of the haunt, of the haunted house. Uh, so Lovecraft begins and ends the story with some suggestion of this, but it's not a horror story. It's not a ghost story. It's an it's an, uh, allegory of history. And it's written at a time very, very crucial in American history, a, a moment in American history in, when, in which uh, the world was in a revolutionary, a revolutionary ferment. Uh, the world was uh, seeing revolutions in Russia, in Germany, uh, in Mexico, in China with the 1911 revolution and the 1919 May 4th movement. Uh, uh, working class people all over the world were beginning to stand up and and make claims like we supported your countries in the war and we demand more justice in the workplace unions in the united states uh, responded to the post-war depression with a wave of strikes and you know you had the peak of the iww the industrial workers of the world in the united states a very uh, aggressive radical militant labor movement made up a that was born in the west and came to the east to take part in strikes like the lawrence strike and others um, the united states was was awash in labor activism and, and and the response of this was brutal propaganda propaganda that discredited all the labor movement as communists it's called the first red scare um, you know, most people know the Red Scare of the 1950s, but this was the Red Scare that had the biggest impact on Lovecraft's worldview in time. Um, and thanks to intense repression, thanks to uh, Pinkerton thugs smashing labor unions, uh, smashing strikes, strike breakers, thanks to 
all sorts of and we can't forget just straight up propaganda propaganda from the media from the the corporate elite who spent much of their time publishing articles warning Americans of the threat of communists the threat of anarchists the threat of revolution at home and this had a huge impact on Lovecraft, obviously, because he writes some of this. The street is anti-revolutionary propaganda, straight up, mixed with anti-immigrant rhetoric, racist rhetoric, uh, and other anxieties of, of the time. Um, so yes, The Street is an important work. And is it his worst story? Um, the anthology I'm using here is the the complete fiction omnibus. I'm using that for stories that aren't in the Leslie Klinger editions. Um, this is what our editor here writes. S.T. Joshi calls The Street probably the single worst tale Lovecraft ever wrote. For most modern readers, it's hard to disagree. Later in his life, Lovecraft himself came to believe the story was terrible. Now, my feeling on this is saying The Street is horrible, racist, garbage, is a way for Lovecraft fans who don't want to face his racism to somehow have their their sacrificial lamb or their their scapegoat story if you hate on this story then the rest doesn't matter Lovecraft's greatness flows in all the other pages his view views on race on immigrants on on civilization on labor on the working class can be dispensed with along with the story of the street. If we just can compartmentalize this one story, throw it away, don't include it in our, in our anthology, uh, Mr. Klinger. If we do that, we can move on and enjoy Lovecraft without any moral burden or moral baggage. And I say no to that. I say no. Let's, the street is as much part of his canon as his other stories. Do, is it his worst? I don't know. Uh, I think there are worse stories, um, actually. But, yeah, it's not pretty to look at. It's, it's, a, it's a burden for us to, to go through, perhaps. It's a story many of you probably don't read because it's not in, included in the standard anthologies. It's not in the Library of America edition. It's obviously not in the Klinger edition. It's not in many other anthologies. It, you only find it in these complete omnibus anthologies, which, of course, several exist. But it's... It's just not one that's commonly analyzed. Now, our editor here in this version gives us some useful background information. Quote, uh, it was written in late 1919, which was the year in which a plot by terrorists to send mail bombs to J.P. Morgan, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and 34 other prominent Americans was exposed in April. Two months later, an Italian-born radical accidentally blew himself up trying to kill Attorney General Alexander Palmer. Palmer responded by launching with the help of J. Edgar Hoover and undercover of a concerted propaganda effort, the Notorious Palmer Raids, which uh, one of the most dramatic of it, which was a day of violent raids against offices of the United Russian Workers on November 7th, 1919. So let's stop here and remember that the American labor movement was one, if not the most violent labor conflicts in, in world history, in the industrial era. Um, brutal warfare, in almost near trench warfare in the coal fields of western Pennsylvania or the, or the western mining towns in, in the Colorados and the Rocky Mountains. Uh, range wars between open rangers and, and fencers. People wanted to enclose the land 
to push out of prosperity the labor of, of independent ranchers. Violent labor conflicts, uh, children being killed in labor protests at labor camps during strikes, some of the most grotesque violent repression. And when we look at America today with its 6% private sector unionization, we look at uh, its tendency to its conservative turn of the last 40 years. If we look at the, the rejection of class politics by so many Americans up until recently, we, we've seen some revival in this, but still class politics has been maligned in much of American history. And to this day, you have presidential candidates who don't want to deal with class politics. They'd rather deal with identity politics or um, uh, those kinds of things and ignore the fundamental crisis of inequality, the crisis of, of, of based or, or just the, the dilemma of asking the question, who built America? And that's even a question of historical, uh, a, a question we need to have historical acuity about. You know, yes, like America was built on the backs of slaves, on the backs of labor on the backs of immigrant workers. And as much as Lovecraft here can try to paint a picture of an American civilization built by hardworking frontiersmen and Puritans, he's wrong. He's wrong. And at the end of the story, when he comes out so strongly against the very working people that built his civilization, which he adored, um, his, his myopia is no more, more clear than in this story. So... Anyways, that's the context. So think about this story in the context of the Red Scare. Um, but because of this story, we get Lovecraft talking about labor. And it's something he doesn't talk that much about. When he does talk about working people, they tend to be backcountry hooligans like uh, Joe Slater um, or the nautical-looking Negro in The Call of Cthulhu, villains from abroad. Um, but this story forces him to deal with the working class in a way that he make, is, makes him rather uncomfortable, I think. Um, so, anyways, without any more background, I hope you got my feel, feelings on this, uh, you know, out there. Uh, let's talk about um, the street. So as the story begins, we're given this uh, brief paragraph where he says, uh, there are those who say places have souls, those that don't, I don't know. I'm just going to tell the story of the street. And um, he starts talking about uh, the colonial era, right? Um, the first people come to the shores of, of New England. This is pretty clearly set in New England in Lovecraft's home. It might literally be the street outside his, his door, uh, for all we know. I don't think we got a clear geographical location except in New England. Right. And we, we get that we get that suggestion from maybe the clothes they wear and some of the suggestion of history. Um, England is referred to here as the Blessed Island across the sea. And they come and we're given this picture of frontier heroism, people building cabins uh, surrounded by th threatening and violent Indians. The Indians are described here only as lurking with their fire arrows. But, you know, heroically, these settlers build their settlements in the context of this threat. Uh, quote, up and down the street walk grave men in conical hats who most of the time carried muskets or following pieces. There were also their bonneted wigs and sober children. In evening, these men with their wives and children would sit around gigantic hearse and read and speak. Very simple were the things which they read and spoke, yet things which gave them courage and goodness and helped them 
by day to subdue the forest and till the fields. So again, a suggestion of the heroic frontiersman. Um, now, Lovecraft again and again talks about the need for enduring civilizations, civilizations rooted in the ground, civilizations that, that uh, I mean, he's, he's not for paralysis of civilization necessarily because he does believe decadence is possible and is happening around him. But he still thinks civilization needs a foundation and that foundation needs to be in place. And that, that place, there's kind of like a blood and soil argument, which we'll get explicitly in this story um, before too long. Um, where, how does he then square this with an immigrant civilization, a settler society? Well, he does this by saying they bring with them the laws and deeds of old of England. And so America must be an Amer a English civilization for this narrative to work. Everyone else is external to that, a threat, whether it's the Indians or the slaves or the, or the immigrants that come later and become the antagonist of this story. Um, Indians fight wars. There's a very brief mention here of Indian wars. Quote, there was a war and thereafter no more Indians troubled the street. Uh, but the labor continues and the civilization gets built. This town becomes a city. The cabins are replaced by beautiful homes. And not just any homes, but homes that are meant to serve for generations, established civilizations. We know Lovecraft loves architecture. It's fascinated by architecture. He writes in stories like The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, pages and pages detailing the architecture of the land. Um, this, these establishments, these homes, get reinforced by commodities from the motherland, from the Blessed Isles, from Britain. Within these carved mantles, Lovecraft writes, and graceful stairs and sensible, pleasing furniture, china and silver brought from the motherland. Of course, uh, England's Industrial Revolution was at the expense of slaves, at the expense of working people, at the expense of, of, of people around the world. Um, and this civilization uh, continues to develop, right? There's a, and for several paragraphs, he talks about this establishment of an American civilization as a copy, as a, a new, new world version of, of England. Okay, then we get a brief mention of the American Revolution. Lovecraft writes, uh, once most of the men went away and some never came back. That was when they furled the old flag and put up a new banner of stripes and stars. Obviously the American Revolution. But the street endures, the street is the same. He wants to say it doesn't get changed by this. Uh, no cultural revolution on the street, of course. If there is one, it's going to come from someone else. And that's when we get in the next section. So as we move into the history of the street in the antebellum period, we are get the first murmurings of immigration of new people coming in. Um, quote, new sounds came from the distance, first strange puffings and shrieks from the river a mile away, and then many years later, strange puffings and shrieks and rumblings from other directions. Uh, the air was not so pure for me. No, this is, this is not immigration. This is, uh, th that comes later. This is the industrialization, the beginning of industrialization. Because uh, he mentions here, tall posts bearing weird wires establishing. But again, he tells us the streets lower endures. The legacy of that civilization is there. Um, then following this is the days of evil quote when many who had known the street of old knew it no more and many knew it who had not known it before and went away for their accents were coarse and strident and their mien and faces unpleasing 
Their thoughts, too, fought with the wise just spirit of the street. Now, this is clearly a reference to immigration in, in New England. Irish, German, perhaps. Probably uh, he's referring here to Irish immigration because of the timeline we have here. And then there's a mention of the Civil War. Again, men came uh, left who never came back. These young men were clad in blue. So this was the Civil War. Um, this is when things start to get bad for the street. Um, now, again, the houses remain, the lower remains, the buildings remain. But, um, quote, new kinds of faces appeared in the street, swarthy, sinister faces with furtive eyes and odd features, whose owners spoke unfamiliar words and placed signs and known, unknown, no, known and unknown characters upon most of the musty houses. Pushcarts crowded the gutters. A sordid, undefinable stench settled over the place and the ancient spirit slept. Uh, again, another wave of immigrants. This, I'm presuming he's referring to the Eastern, Southern European immigration of the, of the end of the 19th century. Uh, so the streets changing due to these new voices, new smells even, uh, assorted, undefinable stench. Um, so we're about halfway through the story. It's a short one. And Lovecraft is basically given in the course of a couple pages here, the entire history of New England from his own worldview, from his own perspective, and that is an English civilization established to be enduring. Uh, despite a break with the mother country, it remains at its whole core English, but this gets corrupted, taken over, in fact. I mean, he constantly reminds us as the reader that the houses were built by these older generations and they get kind of, these are, these are squatters. These are people who build, who, who attach themselves to the civilization without contributing to it anything but their odd features, furtive eyes, unfamiliar words, unknown characters, surreal alphabet, I suppose, and sordid, undefinable stenches. So, yeah, uh, not, not a pleasant picture of, of, of Lovecraft's views on, on people not of Anglo-American stock. All right, so the next, next we're told about World War I and revolution. So the way Lovecraft here describes World War I is as something we see in some of his poetry and some of his nonfiction writing, but I think it's clearest in one of his poems, is that uh, the war provides an opportunity for a reunification of motherland and America. Quote, then the Western land itself awoke and joined the motherland in her titanic struggle for civilization. It's not America, notice, it's the Western land. It's not, it, it's just an adjunct of, of English, Anglo-Saxon civilization, uh, it seems in his view. Uh, not a new civilization, not a new culture emerging the way Emerson may have wanted. Uh, instead, it's just uh, the Western independent provinces of a greater uh, civilization. Um, now, this war is a little bit different because the people who go off to war are of a more mixed group. Uh, quote, again, young men went forth, but not quite as they did the young men of those other days. Something was lacking. And the sons of those young men in other days who did indeed go forth in the olive drab with the true spirit of their ancestors went from distant places and knew not the street or its ancient spirit. So here's re he's referring, I think, mostly to the fact that many people who maybe were of the street, you know, moved elsewhere in the country. And, and settled to the West. Uh, so they win the war um, and come back, you know, kind of as greater than they were. 
Quote, those who had lacked something lacked it no longer, yet did fear and hatred and ignorance still brood over the street. So the decline continues despite this kind of revival of heroism uh, through the return of the war. And the big problem here is again the immigrants. Quote, swarthy and sinister were most of the strangers, yet among them one might find a few faces like those who fashioned the street and molded its spirit, like and yet unlike, for there was in their eyes of all weird unhealthy glitter as the greed, ambition, vindictiveness, or misguided zeal. Unrest and treason were abroad amongst in the evil few who plotted to strike the western land its death blow, that they might mount to power over its ruins. Um, so the now he's talking directly about his own historical context, the days that this story was written, about some plot that he sees as the goal of the of the labor movement, the goal of of immigrant organizations striving for more rights for immigrants, the rights of uh, just the the various radical protest movements of the time, anarchists, the IWW, mostly made up of immigrant uh, workers. All these are not striving for justice and freedom and equality in a land that claims those things. Instead, they're calling for the complete destruction of the Western land, right? And he goes on talking about the geography of the street. It's crumbling houses teamed with alien makers of discord and echoed with the plans and speeches of those who yearned for the appointed day of blood, flame, and crime. So we got a conspiracy at work here. Um, Lovecraft loves writing about immigrant people and their conspiracies, their subcultures, their plotting. Uh, you know, there's a direct parallel here to what he's describing in this story and the Cthulhu cult or the cult described in the horror at Red Hook. It's, it's pretty much the same story, um, maybe told in different ways. Of course, those are supernatural tales. This is more of a historical allegory. I mean, actually, it's not even that allegorical. I mean, it's just a, except that it's got a generic place. It's, it's pretty much laying out what he, how he sees history of, of the United States. But anyways, at this point, now we're, we're almost done with the story already. Just one page left, and he's going to start to talk about this, this plot. So where is this conspiracy um, hatched? Well, he actually names the places. Quote, uh, Petrovich's Bakery, the squalid Rifkin School of Modern Economics, the Circle Social Club, and the Liberty Cafe. So these are uh, suggestions of, of immigrant communities, uh, immigrant institutions, uh, socialism, the Rifkin School of Modern Economics being some shout out, I think, to socialism. Reformers like the Circle Social Club. These are all in some kind of conspiracy to destroy the, the, the street and, and, you know, by extension, all of the Western lands uh, of, of the Anglo-Saxon civilization. Um, he suggests here that some people still remember the good old days, but they're fewer and fewer. Um, and then in the final page of the story, we are given um, a little bit more about the plot, although it's all, it's all very subtle. Um, there's signs of it through handbills. There are is growing rumors of unrest, um, you know, but what they want is clear. Quote, in these writings, the people were urged to tear down the laws and virtues that our fathers had exalted, to stamp out the soul of the old America, the soul that was bequeathed through a thousand and a half years of Anglo-Saxon freedom, justice, and moderation. It was said that the swart men who dwelled in the street and, its congregate, and congregated in its rotting edifices were the brains of a hideous revolution that their world of command, many millions of brainless, besotted beasts would stretch forth their noisome towns from the slums of a thousand cities 
burning, slain, and destroying to the land of our fathers should be no more. So, who comes in defense? Well, he suggests the, the only group that comes in defense are the Olive Drab men, the World War I veterans, who somehow come back from the war with a revived sense of their place in, in proper civilization, and they help to fight against it, but nevertheless, the rebellion comes. And we're not told in many details here. The story comes to a very quick end at this point. But uh, now here he does get a bit allegorical because uh, what is the end of one night, the night of ravages and storms and worms, this is the word he uses, uh, the morning after is the entire street is destroyed except for two ancient chimneys and part of a stone, stout brick wall. Nor did anything that had been alive come alive from the ruins. So this is the end. This is the end. Yet, you know, he says, yeah, something survives, but nothing alive can come forth anymore. It is over. Um, and that's it. It's, it's kind of like Sarnath, actually. Um, Sarnath is destroyed and will never come back. The streets destroyed and will never come back. A very, very similar tale, actually. This is kind of the non-science fiction, non-fantasy version of the doom that came to Sarnath, in a way. Um, the story ends with uh, a callback to the very first paragraph. There will be those who say things in places that have souls, and they may be those who say they have not. I dare not say myself, but I have told you of the street. That's the exact same um, line, actually, just a re repetition. So uh, this is his view of history, it seems to me, in, in brief. In, he says the same kind of stuff in his letters and a little bit more... Uh, academic terms with a little bit more historical nuance but yes you could say that this story comes out of the panic of the Red Scare but at the same time he's been saying this stuff in some of his stories he says it in later stories it's not a one-off it's only a one-off in its kind of direct racism it's the vileness of his language in reference to immigrants and just the the kind of obtuse way he goes about telling his tale now, as I said when I started this episode, most people look at the street and don't think that much of it. They think it's, it's either a, an embarrassing uh, experiment he wrote that should be forgotten and maybe not taken too seriously. We just say it's his worst tale ever and then therefore ignore it. But, and this is one thing that's been bothering me, although I haven't really done the full research on it yet, is, is, there, is there a space for alt-right people to reclaim Lovecraft. And, and maybe this is why I feel the need to take a hold of him and, and talk about Lovecraft, is because I actually worry. I, I've seen hints of it, and, and you can't take hints you see on the internet as evidence of, of any greater movement or greater threat. But you know the alt-right is an internet phenomenon, and many of them are people who, who have read Lovecraft and know Lovecraft, and, and maybe aren't as eager to compartmentalize or ignore or try to overlook Lovecraft's racism and overall worldview, right? I think there are voices out there that actually would embrace that and see that this is actually what makes Lovecraft great is somehow he, he knew he, he was more of a prophet then than a, than a just a horror writer. And so I don't have much to work on. I'm just going to look at some of the comments on the audiobook version of The Street on YouTube. So I won't name any names. You can see these comments for yourself. Um, whoever uploaded this did not remove the racist comments. It was uploaded by Baskerville Manor, this audiobook version. Um, and not all the comments are 
are racist or, or saying, oh, Lovecraft was right. But um, anyways, quote, I realize not that HPL was able to see into the future. I'm confounded. Someone did reply to that comment, though, saying that this took place before it was written. Um, what else we got here? Uh, this is relevant today. That's another voice. He's talking about the Jews, by the way. That's another comment. Uh, so just a few comments here. There's not many, um, so I don't want to read too much into this, but I'm just concerned that that there are, with the growth of the alt-right on the internet, that there might be a an audience for Lovecraft that's less uncomfortable with his racial politics and actually see them as as one of the benefits of kind of a of reviving Lovecraft's worldview and some you know and I also agree we need to be honest about his racism but to unlock um, his well really for me it's I want to turn it on its head I want to turn Lovecraft on his head and and really make the villains the heroes in a lot of these these stories well anyways it's something I'm gonna be thinking about and and trying to look into a little bit more all right then, so that's my thoughts on The Street by H.P. Lovecraft. And this closes unit one of this podcast. Um, in the next episode, I'll be looking at his the letters he wrote between 1911 and 1924. And I'll do that in one episode. Now, I don't have the selected letters. I, I did look at them and I took notes. So you'll be getting my notes about the letters. I, I took notes on about, I don't know how many, maybe... 30 out of 150 of the letters in the first volume of the selected letters. I only looked at the ones that were relevant to the themes I was interested at the time I was reading them. Um, but I have those notes and, and I'll talk about those notes. I have some quotes from those letters as well. Then I'm going to look at some of his amateur journalism, maybe his astronomy writing, some of his early poems. And, and when I kind of exhaust all I want to say about his early nonfiction writing and poetry, then I'm going to jump into the stories he wrote from 1920 to 1924, which is quite a lot. So it's going to be another long series of, of, of writings. So anyways, uh, what are your thoughts on the street? Um, what do you, as a work of art, as a work of, of anti-working class propaganda, that's how I sort of see it here. I think it fits into a genre of, of anti-working class rhetoric that was common at the time. Um, and therefore this story is not very original. It's just maybe in framing it as a story, it has some originality, but it, it says a lot of the same stuff that just the mainstream press was saying about communist anarchists, uh, labor activists, immigrant uh, radicals or, 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 or other groups like that. Um, but anyways, uh, what do you think about uh, this, this story? Let me know, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And next time we'll be looking at some of Lovecraft's uh, letters. So I look forward to that. Uh, thank you as always for listening.